This week on Myths and Legends, it's one of the four great Chinese folk tales. It's about a parent's quest to protect their child, a wife's quest to find her husband, and a young man's quest to not do any manual labor. The creature this time is just a fun foodie friend who wants to share his latest craving. Unfortunately, that new food he likes to eat is human children. This is Myths and Legends, episode 115, Another Brick in the Wall. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's our first time in Chinese folklore, with one of the most popular stories. I don't want to give too much away, but it's set in the time of the first emperor, around 215 BC. The first emperor became the first emperor when he, as a king, conquered the other states and established his empire. Everything calm within, he turned his eye outward to those beyond his empire, and the paranoid man thought of something that would keep them all at bay. Chi Liang sat in the other room, barely breathing as he listened through the walls. On the other side sat the man from the emperor, the one who came for the boys. Chi Liang knew why the man was here. He was here to take boys to the wall. The emperor was afraid, and because he was afraid, he was building a wall between them and the barbarians. The long wall. Chi Liang was a student, a scholar. More importantly, he was his parents' only son, their only child. They had tried for years to conceive, and when they last thought all hope was gone, they became pregnant in their old age. Seventeen years had now passed, and the parents were now even older. Chi Liang could see his father beginning to shake and waver, trying to squeeze a few more years of work out of his life so his family didn't starve. The son had started working, and that made things a bit easier. But when the edict about building the wall came down, everything changed. People had to start sending their own children to the wall. Those with up to three children had to send one. Families with five or more had to send two. It had only been about six months of this, so no one had returned yet. But everyone heard things, horrible things, about people, about children, being worked to the point of death on the job, only for the wall to continue being built around them as the crew pressed on. Now, Chi Leung couldn't believe what he was hearing. His parents were talking to the visiting man from the government, laughing with him. They told him that their son would be on the carriage with him the next day when he left and that they would pack food for the rest of the boys. They thanked the man for the opportunity to honor their emperor, and the door shut. Ji Liang heard their footsteps coming toward his room, but it didn't matter. He slumped over the floor and cried. His parents looked on him and shook their heads. Through sobs, their son told them that he couldn't go to the wall. He was a scholar, a student. He wasn't built for hard labor. Surely he would die, and when he died, who would take care of his parents? This was monstrous. What kind of a leader tore children away from their parents and built a useless wall for the sake of his own insecurities? Resolutely, Ji Liang's parents instructed their son to pack up. He was leaving. The boy nodded. He already knew. He had heard them talking to the official, Tiang. 
He had all night to pack, before they shipped him off tomorrow to die for a tyrant. His mother knelt down and gripped her son's chin, and jerked him up to face her. Chi Leong immediately stopped crying. You misunderstand, she said. He wasn't leaving tomorrow. He was leaving tonight. And he needed to get packed now. Chi Leong's mother stood. No son of hers was going to die building a stupid wall. No, he was going to run. By dawn, Chi Leong was miles away from home. He had pleaded with his parents. If caught, he would be executed, and by helping him, they also risked execution. Tears began to well up in their eyes. They had played nice with the official when he came by. It was obvious that their son was in the house and that he could hear them. They'd have some deniability. Besides, if Chi Leong didn't leave, if he was taken to the wall to die, what more could the emperor take from them? If he lived and they died, they would die in peace. If he died and they were left here, they would soon follow. Chi Leong's parents wouldn't be able to live with themselves, not having done everything to protect their child. So, Chi Leong walked. He walked deeper into the countryside, away from the border and the wall. The first night he tried to stay at an inn, with what little money his parents had been able to spare, and learned that his desertion hadn't gone unnoticed. The official, Tian, was looking for him. Chi Leong spent that night, and many others like it, sleeping in ditches, trees, and holes. He was uncomfortable, but he was alive. And that was enough. Meng Jiang called out for a servant, but no one came. She had been walking by her private bath when the wind came out of nowhere and caught her fan. Before she could run to it, it slid from the rocks by her bath and plopped right into the water. Jiang had summoned a servant, but apparently there were none in that part of the estate. Actually, none were allowed in that part of the estate. This was her private bath. She watched the fan sink deeper and deeper and knew that if she didn't get it out soon, it would be ruined, if it wasn't ruined already. She shut the door behind her and felt the warm summer air on her skin. Sure, a bath might be nice. She slid off her robes and carefully entered the pool. She practically had to submerge her head as she rooted around for the fan. But she found it at last, opened it, and set it on a nearby rock to let the sun dry it. Time would tell if it was ruined. Junk closed her eyes and rested her head on the edge of her bath. That was when she heard the thud. Her eyes snapped open. On the ground before her sat Chi Leung, right next to the tree from which she had just fallen, the tree overlooking her private bath. Hi, um, sorry, not looking. I mean, I did look, but not on purpose. I mean, I, sorry, yeah, not looking now. I'll see myself out. Jung watched the stranger babble as he walked away, a hand over his eyes. Wait, she said. Her first inclination was to scream when she was surprised by a man watching her bathe. But as soon as he laid eyes on her, she was complicit. I mean, she wasn't. But the society was a bit complex. He had seen her naked. Something that was only meant for her husband. If she screamed and the whole estate came running, people would talk. Even though it was none of her fault, her marriage prospects would be forever altered by the stranger. As it stood, it was their secret. So she demanded that he look away. Waited for him to comply and then quickly emerged from the pool 
and wrapped herself. So, how'd you guys meet? Jung's parents asked her for dinner a few nights later. Chi Leung should have really thought up a lie to answer that question. It was like the one question to expect when meeting your girlfriend's parents. He was creeping in a tree while I was bathing, Jung said, putting it all out there. Her parents were confused. Okay. And? Jung explained that they knew how she was worried about making a good match, right? Well, she had been praying for weeks, for months, that when the right man came along, it would be obvious. She told them about the fan, the unplanned bath, and the man that had seen her naked. At first, she was going to quietly kick him out. But then they got talking, and they hit it off. She learned that he wasn't a pervert, just a guy in a bad situation. She told her parents that she loved him. And even though it seemed like it was accidental, in retrospect, fate's hand had been pushing them together the whole time. And now, she wanted to marry him. Her parents looked at each other. And he also passed all of his exams at eight. He knows the most important books backwards and forwards. He's brilliant and will have an even more illustrious career. Her parents nodded. Well, you know, that was better to hear, but there was still one more thing they needed to clear up. Why was he sleeping up in a tree? Ji Leung took the opportunity to speak up. Could he just say filial piety and leave it at that? Jung's parents shook their heads. He wanted to marry their daughter, so no. No, he could not. So he explained the whole situation to them. And they were surprised to learn that it actually was because of filial piety. He had left home at the request of his parents, so that he could return one day and care for them. Ji Leung sighed and looked at everyone in the room. Would they at least allow him a 30-minute head start before they called the authorities? Jung's parents shook their heads. No, they wouldn't give him that, because he didn't need it. They hated the new emperor too. The only reason their daughter had to resort to meeting guys in trees was because the construction for the wall had sucked the country dry. The best men were going to the frontier to die. Look, their unconventional meat cute aside, Chi Leung seemed like a good guy, and being on the run from the emperor was a plus, not a negative. When the man was inevitably deposed, Chi Leung would have a long and storied career. Until then, they could marry in secret, and Chi Leung could stay there with them. If he never left their estate, who was to know he was even there? The pair looked at each other with a smile. They couldn't believe it. They could be together. They were going to get married. Several months passed, and the emperor remained emperor. What the majority of people and nobles thought was always right around the corner never came. Life continued on, and more and more young men went to the dreaded wall. Young women, too. For those families that fought the edict, or tried to deceive officials, not only were all their sons taken, but their daughters as well. By now, everyone knew the truth of the wall. People died on their feet, their bodies trampled by their fellow workers, who dared not stop for a second themselves, lest they be whipped beaten or executed, bodies turned to bones and bones to dust. The number of workers swelled, 
as the paranoid emperor rushed to complete his wall. The officials also had quotas they had to fill, and Tiang, the man who had come for Qiliang, was starting to fear for his own life. They were now forced to return to villages for the infirm, the old, the blind, really anyone who could stand on two feet. While the official was visiting Qiliang's old village, he started to remember one young man who escaped early on, a smart man who ran away in the night. There had been other things to worry about at that time, so Tian had left the parents to die in shame after being abandoned by their only child, though he wasn't completely convinced that they didn't have a hand in their son's disappearance. Back in town, Tian decided to look into the issue and approach the house. To his surprise, the parents were doing well, shockingly well for two people who couldn't find work and didn't have a son to provide for them anymore. Tian looked at their perfect china, new roof and nice clothes. They were barely dressed like peasants at all. The official came by to offer his condolences about their son and they greeted him warmly, appearing to be angry about their son. Still, things weren't adding up. Something was going on and Tian was gonna get to the bottom of it. Chi Liang found a bucket and looked out on the moonlit field. He smiled. It had been an amazing few months. He was newly married and he and his wife had the whole wing of the estate to themselves. She was smart, interesting, funny, beautiful. They were a perfect match and they loved each other very much. Chi Liang was able to support his parents too, sending them gold on a monthly schedule. He had hopes that the emperor would fall, but if he didn't, there were worse fates than being cloistered with your rich, beautiful new wife. Sometimes, though, he liked to get out. On nights when the moon was waning, he went to the well. The estate had a beautiful courtyard and gardens, but there was still something nice about running and feeling the wild earth beneath his feet. His wife didn't approve of the risk, but he said it was hardly that. No one would be looking for him here. Or so he thought. He had just reached the well when he felt a knife on his throat. It was Tiang. Chi Liang tried to fight, but there was only so much he could do. The official, Tiang, had the drop on him. Five more men rose from the grass as the official made the first move. After all this time, they finally had the elusive Chi Liang. Tiang inched closer to the young man. Did he know how long he had been searching for him? How humiliated the officer had been after Chi Liang's escape? But now he was captured. Chi Liang was going to the wall after all. The official whispered into Chi Liang's ear. He had to get the young man to the wall safely. But after he was there, anything could happen. People died on the wall all the time. Chi Liang begged the official to at least be allowed to say goodbye to his wife and family. Ting sneered. Sure. The official would love to see the traitors that had been harboring him. Maybe he passed their names along to the emperor too. But Chi Liang didn't care. He had one last play for his freedom. As he neared the house, he screamed. He wanted to wake up the whole estate to get everyone's attention. And he did. In moments, the whole house was running outside to see Chi Liang bound by the official. As soon as Jiang was outside, Chi Liang called to her, saying that that thing they talked about, now was the time. She nodded and returned in moments with a bag. She put her hand on the officials and looked at him in his eyes, pleading. Her husband was a frail, bookish man, and he was better suited to serve the emperor here, with his mind, than toiling away at the wall. She said that Tian was obviously a smart man, 
He could see she was right. She took a deep breath. Here's what she was willing to do. She guessed at the official's annual salary. She was high, but Tian didn't correct her. Jung held up a bag. She had three times that number right here. Tian didn't have to do anything other than let go of the ropes that bound her husband's wrists and walk away. He didn't see anyone at the well that night. The fugitive, Chi Liang, must now be living among the barbarians, you know, if he was living at all. It took the official less than half a second to make the decision. The choice was obvious. He immediately let go of the ropes and held out his hand. Jiang dropped the bag of gold in his palm. Chi Liang smiled and turned around for his wife to cut the ropes when he felt the official grab them once again. The shock dawned on Jiang as her husband was pulled backward to the guards. Tiang smiled and tossed one of the men his bag of gold. Jiang, the wife, was stunned. The official, he, he, he couldn't do that. They had a deal. Tiang laughed loudly. Aside from the fact that he was a month overdue getting this guy to the wall anyway, and that the official might be executed if he didn't show up with enough workers, what were Jiang and her family going to do? Hmm? Complain to the emperor that they were harboring a fugitive, and that the man who arrested him stole their bribe? Great idea. They should go do that. Jung should kiss her husband goodbye. This was the last time she was ever going to see him. The official would make sure of that. Chi Liang was in tears. He told his wife to look at him. They didn't have much time. She needed to listen to him. He... He was dead. She should think of him as dead. And she should remarry. There was no reason she should waste the best years of her life in love with a dead man. Nobody even knew they were married. She could find another man. A good man. Marry. Have children. Have a life. And forget about him. Please. Jian laughed. That was the first smart thing Chi Liang had said all night. Jiang couldn't speak. She could only watch in stunned silence as they dragged her husband away. The last thing she heard was him begging her to please, please forget him, to live her life. They had arrested him in spring. They had taken him wearing light pants and a shirt that he slept in. Jung wept. It was now nearly October, and she hadn't heard anything of her husband. She looked on the brand new coat she had bought. In secret, of course. If her parents had any idea what she was going to do, they would never let her leave. And if they knew that she was going to the frontier, to the wall, they would lock her away, and she would never see her husband again. Deep down inside, she knew. She probably would never see him again. But Jung dreamed of him all the time, and she knew that they were more than dreams. At first, he was normal. Not happy, but he pretended, as they talked in her dreams over the next few months. His thin clothes became shabbier and shabbier. He became more stooped, and then, when he coughed, it racked his whole body. And then, one night, the dream stopped. To bring him some clothes and food to get him through winter was all she could do. Jung knew. She knew that he was probably dead. But she refused to believe it. She couldn't. If he was alive, she would work alongside him. 
If he was dead, she would curl up next to his bones and die too. Jung peered through the window. The moon would light her way as she went west. Taking one last look at the house, she took off silently across the field. It was nearly impossible to leave her parents, but if Chi Leung was still alive, he needed her more. We'll keep following her on her journey, but that will be right after this. We all like a clean home, right? All right, now back to the show. She sat down at a hostel and ordered some food, a gold piece clicking down on the table. The man behind the counter looked at the gold piece, looked at her, and smiled. Sure. He'd be right back. Jung looked left and right. She noticed a dozen heads turn away right before she met their eyes. They were all watching her. That was when she noticed that she was different from everyone else in the provincial hostel. Her clothes were expensive. Her hair was clean. Her purse was full. She started to hear whispers. When the man behind the counter returned, the beautiful young woman was gone. But she left the gold for her food. The group of men that immediately got up to follow her outside stopped at the door. They saw only the dark forest and the lamps swaying and the brisk autumn winds. Jung spent that night, and many more like it, huddled in a hole like an animal. She couldn't stay at the inns or hostels. That attracted too much unwanted attention. On rainy and stormy nights, she would hide outside farmhouses, seeing the types of people that were inside. She only approached women, and when she did, she offered them way too much money for a warm bed and a bit of food. They would try to help her, to dry her damp and freezing clothes, but that only lasted a few days until she was caught in a rainstorm or splashed by a passing carriage. The watchman at a pass saw that she was a lone young woman and demanded a payment to pass, and she was glad that she could pay them with money. She crept around bandits and highwaymen and padded past bears and wolves. Snow began to fall, the fringes of her dress froze. As the winds of winter whipped her, she cursed herself for coming prepared for her husband, but not herself, despite her thin clothes and bleeding feet. Jung pressed on. In the early weeks of January, she arrived at a frozen lake and saw the long wall looming beyond it. After she passed over the lake, she saw them. The bones. Everywhere. Those farthest away were nearly white the ones closer to the wall still poked through decaying flesh. It would seem that the rumors of death at the wall weren't true. Reality was so much worse. Jung managed to keep from vomiting as she picked her way across the field. The sound of picks and hammers grew louder with each step. Soon, she was standing before the wall, countless workers building in each direction. That's when Jung realized it. She, she didn't recognize any of these men. There must be hundreds, thousands of people working on the wall. Tears began to well up, but she wiped them away. She had come too far to sit down and cry. She was going to find her husband. Jung began walking along the wall, calling his name. It wasn't long before a man heard it and stood. She smiled and ran to him, but it wasn't Chi Leung. She didn't even recognize this man. He looked left and right to the patrol 
Not now. Tonight. He pointed to the white stone on the wall. She should come back tonight. He took a final, furtive glance at the guard before turning back to his work. Joan begged him for more information, but he refused to talk, barking at her to leave before she was put to work too. Jung watched from the forest, the reek of corpses barely blunted by the frost. Three men arrived at the stone and stood there, looking out. She heard one whisper frantically, looking around and asking if the girl was coming. The man she talked to this morning nodded his head. She would come, and she did. Jung walked from the trees and asked where her husband was. The man she had talked to that morning nodded and pointed to the white stone embedded in the wall. Here, she was about to ask what he meant by that. When she saw it, scratched on the foundation was the name Chi Leong and a date. It had been four months ago when her dream stopped. Her husband was dead. The tears that she had refused to cry came pouring out of her. The men tried to explain that they did all they could, but one of the officials was trying to kill him. Chi Leong had been a good man, he had helped other people, shared his food with people who were punished. He stood up to the guards, even if it meant that he would be beaten harder. That's why they gave him a grave. A man like Chi Leung couldn't be left to rot like the others. He would be remembered for as long as they lived. Jung didn't hear any of that. She doubled over, and her deep sobs echoed throughout the camp. The men began to worry. They knew she missed him, but she needed to quiet down. If she didn't, Oh no. There was shouting from atop the wall. It was him. Tiang. The workers broke and ran. And Tiang whistled and raised the alarm. Then, he looked down to the white stone at the base of the wall and smiled. It was her. He shouted at his guards to grab her and bring her to his quarters. The men began to run to the wall, but then stopped. There was a rumbling. Jung couldn't feel any of it. She was weeping, crying out to the gods and the kings above that if they were truly watching over her, if there was any justice in this world, all she wanted was to see her husband's bones. All she wanted was to hold him one last time. The gods, it seemed, listened. The ground began to rumble underneath her and the wall began to shake. One brick came loose, then another. Tian, the official, shrieked and started his descent. But he was too late. The very wall he was commissioned to build, the wall that he killed men to help construct, collapsed under his feet and caved in on top of him, crushing him beneath its weight. Jung felt the dust hit her face as the wall fell around her, but not on her. Whatever had happened, the white stone and the room behind it were now revealed. There were bones of men laid out next to each other. Five of them. Ji Leung hadn't been the only one. Jung didn't know how she knew to do this. Maybe it was the gods once again. But she bit her fingertips until they bled. She rubbed the blood on one set of bones, then another. The last, finally, absorbed the blood. She began weeping again. Chi Leung. Her, Chi Leung. There he was. He was right. 
he had died that day when he was taken for the wall. She didn't care about the shouting guards behind her. She didn't hear them. She took the coat from her pack and draped it over what was left of the man she loved. Then, she laid down in the grave next to her husband and, for the first time in months, she truly slept. Jiang never expected to wake. She never wanted to wake, but she did. Her bandaged fingers grazed the sheets. She managed to open her eyes to see that she wasn't in a grave, but a bed. A gold bed? She sat up with a start, but a woman ran to her, telling her to rest. She had traveled a long way to the wall and had traveled even farther since. Jiang's eyes looked at the gaudiest, most ornate room she had ever seen. Whoever designed this place really wanted people to know that they were rich. Like, we get it, but not everything needs to be gold. The woman insisted that Jung rest. The future empress needed to heal. Jung's eyes widened in horror as the woman smiled. Yes, the emperor had demanded to know who was responsible for his wall collapsing. It couldn't have been the surely excellent workmanship of captives working at a breakneck pace Someone had to be responsible. Still unconscious, Jung had been brought to him. And he had fallen in love. Immediately, he put her on the first carriage to the capital. She had been out for a few days. But here she was. The woman complimented her. She really was as beautiful as everyone said. So much so, that the emperor was going to ignore his 72 concubines and marry her. Jung started talking. And didn't stop. She had come so far to see her husband, her, her late husband. She had delivered clothes to him after the gods themselves brought down part of the wall. Her journey was complete and she was ready to die. But she had woken up here in a beautiful room with a woman telling her that she was to be an empress. She saw the hand of fate clearly, as clear as it was when she met Chi Liang. She would do it. She would marry the emperor, but she had some requests first. The caretaker paused. Oh, well, it was cute that she was on board, but it didn't really matter. She literally had no choice in the matter. He was the emperor. He didn't take anyone's requests, especially not some woman he found who destroyed part of his wall. Jung sat up in bed with a smile. Well, then he obviously hadn't met her yet. In the end, the emperor agreed to all three of Jung's requests. Maybe it was because he believed the word of her caretaker that she was willing to die if they weren't fulfilled. She didn't know. All she knew was that he was going to do it. The first request was that her late husband be buried with all honors, and that he be given a burial plot of three square miles next to the wall where he had died, and that the festival and sacrifices honoring him would last 49 days. Seeing as the spot of Chi Leung's death was next to a river, she wanted a tall bridge built on the road to the wall, she didn't want any hindrances when it came to honoring the late husband of the empress. Lastly, she wanted the emperor himself, his whole court, and all the nobles to come to Chi Liang's funeral. Seeing as it was simply giving up a plot of land, the emperor had a lot of those, redirecting workers, of which he also had a lot, and moving his entire court for the weekend, 
it really wasn't too much to do in order to marry the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. In less than a month after it was announced at the wall, the bridge and the memorial to Qileong was constructed. The empress-to-be herself, Jiang, was there to oversee the movement of the bones, still draped in the cloak she had brought from home to their final resting place. Sometime in that month, word traveled to Jiang's parents. When the messenger returned, asking if they were to be invited to the funeral, Jiang refused. She said they could come to the wedding, but doing this for Qileong was simply Jiang fulfilling her last duty to her spouse. Nothing more. Jiang was there as the first noble started coming over the bridge to lay Qileong and her old life to rest. While waiting for the funeral to begin, several nobles grew faint as the smell of rotting corpses became unbearable. The emperor's attendants were incensed. Jiang had been left to oversee the preparations, but she seemed singularly focused on Qileong and the bridge, not hiding the bodies. The attendants had discovered, in shock, that the bodies had only been hastily dumped in the forest, barely hidden from view during the funeral, and the smell still unavoidably apparent. The crowd bowed low, as the emperor approached the grave, with Jung by his side. They came to a stop before the ornate casket, and Jung bowed low. The emperor didn't. Jung stood and turned to her emperor and future husband. Bow. The emperor chuckled. He was the emperor. He wasn't going to bow before the remains of a commoner. How would that look? Jung whispered that she didn't care how that looked. Either he bowed or she wouldn't be his wife. The emperor laughed. She couldn't be serious, but he looked in her eyes. Her caretakers weren't joking when they said that she was different. He could see the resolve. She wouldn't yield an inch. He gritted his teeth as he glared at her. She was beautiful, and he would do it because he wanted to marry her. But as soon as they were married, he would break her of this insolence. Gasps went up as the emperor bowed low before the bones of a commoner. A small smile formed on Jiang's lips. As all the nobles in the empire bowed before Qileong, Jiang took her place at the top of the bridge to open the proceedings. And open them she did. Our ruler, a tyrant, wastes your money and our blood on his wall, Jiang said. She suddenly had the attention of the whole crowd. The forests are packed with the common man he has worked to death and miles and miles and miles of wall scream out with both their blood and your money. And for what? A wall to keep barbarians at bay? Chung laughed. If we need a wall to maintain our kingdom, then the barbarians had already won. The world's submission to a civilization depends on its virtue. And this? She motioned to the forest, the emperor, and the wall. This is not virtue. A virtuous society wouldn't waste the blood of the common man and the riches of the nobles. A virtuous emperor wouldn't kill a woman's husband and then threaten her virtue by coercing her into marrying him. John looked down both sides of the bridge to the emperor's men who were already running up it. She looked out in the crowd and stepped onto the newly constructed railing. She said that her time was running short. She thanked them for coming out to the wall and seeing what the emperor was doing in their name, in all of their names. She looked down at the emperor and said that once she was dead, she would lament day and night in the land of the shades. 
she would ensure that his empire didn't last long. The emperor's men continued rushing the wall and were nearly upon Jiang. At the final second, she turned to tell her precious Jiliang goodbye for the last time, and she stepped free from the railing. A gasp burst from the gathered nobles, and then silence. As the form of Jiang, her shroud fluttering in the wind, plummeted toward the river and cracked hard on the surface of the water, Jiang was dead. The emperor demanded that her body be dragged out and thrown to the dogs. But the dowager empress, his own grandmother, quietly stepped forward to the water. Nobles rushed to her aid, and they lifted the beautiful young woman from the water. They ignored the emperor's curses as they laid her down on Chileong's tomb. The husband and wife, having weathered so much, were together at last. In a rage, the emperor tried to have his own grandmother executed for honoring Jiang, but his soldiers wouldn't carry it out. No one stopped her when she oversaw the construction of a beautiful new tomb on the site of Qiliang's grave. A temple for Jiang was also erected, and as people traveled from far and wide to offer spring and summer offerings, Meng Jiang became recognized as a heavenly immortal. The emperor's government quickly collapsed after his death, just as Jiang said it would. And according to legend, his wall followed not 10 years later. He's remembered today as a cruel tyrant thanks, in part, to the words of this brave woman. For nearly the entirety of Chinese history, the first emperor was seen as a mercilessly cruel tyrant. He was the type to have tens of thousands of workers build his tomb and then put them to death to hide his secrets. He's attributed with building the famous terracotta army to protect him in his afterlife. And he was the person who started the wall around year 200 BC. With repairs and rebuilding, a lot of his original work is gone. Most of the current wall was built in the Ming Dynasty, around the 14th century AD, so about 1600 years after this story takes place. If you're interested in learning more about this story, there's a book by Wilt Adema titled Meng Jiangnu Brings Down the Great Wall, which includes 10 different versions of the story, along with a lot of context. They're all pretty different and interesting. For instance, in one, both Jung and Qiliang are spirits, and just come down into the bodies of the normal people for the story. And in another, Qiliang joins up willingly for the honor of building the wall. The story you heard today appears to be the most widely accepted version, but as usual, there is always more than one version. Next week, it's our first time going into Mexican legends with a compelling, bloody Robin Hood-like story. I want to say thanks to Minuescu, Dairy767, Fifth Try for a Nickname, good job on the success, Claire V1001, K Henderson, Russ78, Young JL, Billy Skylander29, T Bird's Eye, Ja Red, Gordian Guy, Desert Deserter, and The Bee Cat 004 for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening and for your time. It's great to hear from you. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place, and you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. And you might know this, but season three of Fictional starts next week. In addition to more Sherlock Holmes and Philip K. Dick stories, we're going to be getting back into the Count of Monte Cristo and starting Dracula this season. So check it out. It's going to be a lot of fun. If you haven't heard Fictional yet, there are 21 episodes waiting for you on that feed. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts by going to apple.fictional.fm 
on Spotify by going to spotify.fictional.fm or by just searching for Fictional wherever you get your podcasts. Seriously, though, if you haven't heard Fictional yet, please go check it out. It's like this show, but, you know, good. The creature this week is the Hanya from Japan. You know what would be fun? A vampire with none of the weaknesses of a classical vampire. So one that could be out during the day, wasn't afraid of garlic or crucifixes, cross running water, didn't need to be invited in, didn't need to compulsively count, and also couldn't die. Yeah, that would be awesome. What if also instead of being a physical creature, it could turn into a spirit, sneak into your house, possess you, and then compel you to eat children while it slowly drives you insane. Great, right? So this is all horrifying, but that's what the Hanya does. His victims are almost exclusively sleeping women, and he's able to phase through walls. Just before he attacks, he screams a horrible shriek. When the victim inevitably wakes up in a confused panic, the vampire uses that opportunity to possess her, and then, yeah, compels her to eat children until she goes insane. Not only does the Hanya not have conventional vampire weaknesses to exploit, but it has no weaknesses whatsoever. It's said to live near the sea or wells, or just water in general, with the sources saying not to worry, it's never too far from humans. It's supposedly susceptible to a Buddhist sutra, which renders humans invisible to spirits and demons, but I guess you have no idea if it worked until you get confirmation that it did not work, and you're awakened to a scream and a craving for a midnight snack. So yeah, sleep well. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>